This is Historicity, where we use our legs, eyes and ears to turn back time and see how the world got to be the way it is. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years, but when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside to walk the streets and to pick apart the layers. In these three walks, we're discovering a tale of two cities, the city of London and the city of Westminster, twinned concentrations of wealth and of power, a two-headed beast which birthed the world's first global city. We'll also explore the industries that emerged in the space between them, the lawyers, the journalists, the academics, who serviced, who sometimes tried to constrain power and wealth. We're fast walkers, but you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. Also, don't be surprised if you sometimes find your path blocked. We'll mention places with restricted hours, but London is always changing, building never stops. It should be easy enough to make your way around the obstruction and get back on track, and you can see the episode notes for maps. In this first episode, we'll be walking through the city of London. We'll be tracing how it leaked beyond the walls of the Roman and the medieval city and grew to control much of the world's trade and industry and finance. We're starting the story near the river at the monument to the Great Fire of 1666. It's a huge turning point in the city's fortunes and it's near the north end of London Bridge. It's also a stop on the district and circle lines. I'll meet you there. So here we are at the monument. It's a very good place to begin London's modern history. We're here at the end of the working day. There's a lot of people drinking outside the pubs you can see around us. They can probably see that the monument's looming over them. They might not know exactly what it's about. The Romans had built a city, had a bridge, it had a wall in the first few centuries of the Common Era. The Anglo-Saxons had rebuilt the wall. The Normans had built some castles at either end of it. That comes at the turn of the first millennium. There was a little bit of commercial activity, a little bit of local government in the next few centuries. But the medieval city was dominated by religious institutions and great mansions. It wasn't really until halfway through the second millennium that things start to take off. Henry VIII helps a bit. In the early 16th century, he's building up the state, he's dissolving the monasteries. That means he's got a bit of land to give away to favourites. But he's also cut Britain off from Europe, which might sound familiar. So they need to scramble, the merchants of London, to find some new markets. That means that there's growing demand for the kinds of things a city with a river can provide. Money, shipyards, lawyers. By the 1550s, merchant adventurers are beginning to get monopolies on trade routes to different parts of the world. The East India Company is going to get one in 1600, and it's going to lord it over the city for much of the next two and a half centuries. We'll hear a bit more about them in just a bit. So by the middle of the 17th century, London has nearly 400,000 people. It's on its way to becoming the third largest city in Europe. But still, things look much like they had centuries before. There are a few new things being built out to the east, to the west, but most people live within the walls or close by on narrow, crowded streets. There was too much going on, not enough space. Perfect conditions for the plague. That starts up again in April 1665. It dies out about a year later, with maybe 100,000 dead. Then, September 1666, comes the fire. It burns for four days, it destroys about 13,000 houses, takes out 436 acres, that's five-sixths of the area within the walls of the city. So here's Beeps. Everybody, endeavouring to remove their goods and flinging into the river or bringing them into lighters, 
poor people staying in their houses as long as till the very fire touched them and then running into boats or clambering from one pair of stairs by the waterside to another and among other things the poor pigeons were loath to leave their houses but hovered about the windows and balconies till they were some of them burned their wings and fell down by the time it burned out london was a clean slate so the architects got busy with visions of what the city might become none of them would come to pass they would have required the redistribution of property in a place where it was already sacred but there was still work to do regulating building to reduce the chances of another fire rebuilding the churches that had been destroyed and erecting this monument which we can see in front of us now to the watershed to this moment in london's history both the churches and the monument are largely the work of christopher wren So I'm looking up at the frieze now, and if you take a look with me, then you can see the story that it's describing. On the left, you've got this slumped figure on a heap of broken masonry. That's the city itself, female, in this depiction. She's got the sword, she's got the dragon, those are her symbols. She's being consoled by this gentleman with the beard. That's old Father Time, of course. And then on the right, you've got Charles II the restored monarch, looking very Roman. He's got his wig, so he's looking fashionable as well, but he's directing the rebuilding. He's gesturing to these three female figures in front of him. You've got architecture there. You've got liberty with her cap. You've got imagination. Under his feet, you've got envy, who's being stomped out. And then overhead, you've got two more figures. You've got plenty with this cornucopia of fruit tumbling down, and you've got peace with an olive branch. So an idealized description of what's coming into being. So we're looking up at the frieze. It's worth pausing just here, pause the podcast and go and look at the inscription on the north side, kind of uphill. There's a missing line at the bottom. The last line of this actually blamed the Catholics for the fire, and that wasn't erased until 1830. By 1830, of course, the city looks very different, and it's continued to change ever since. You can see that just from looking around where we are now. So we're going to start walking now. We're going to go down the hill... You can see in the middle of the pedestrian road there, there's a little glass box, so aim for that, and we'll pick up the story and begin to see what happened. So we're heading downhill. We're going to pass this little glass box on the right. And the first thing to think about when you're kind of like taking apart the city, peeling apart its layers, is that there have been continuous improvements over time. Originally, actually, the monument was hidden away in a warren of back streets. So the road we're walking down didn't exist at that time. What you've got here, therefore, is roads that came along in the 19th century initially and opened up the path so you could see the monument. But at that point, even in the 19th century, the monument is much more connected to the building you can see across the way there and therefore connected to the river, which is, of course, why London exists. It's a trading city. It needs a river to trade on. It's still connected to actually what that building is, Billingsgate, which is the old fish market. There's a building there from 1600. There's fish being sold there by 1800. It's beginning to specialise. This one is later. It's the 1870s. But then, after the war, so we're now talking 1960s, 1970s, traffic is getting out of control. You can see we've got too many cars. And so they build this new Lower Thames Street, this busy street, which we're going to turn on to down here. And it really cuts off the city, which we're leaving behind us now, from the river, from the wharves, breaking a historical link. So the first thing to think about with the city is the roads were not always the roads you see. There have been improvements over the years. The second thing, of course, is that the same is true of individual sites. Buildings have been repurposed over the years as the city takes off. 
And we've got a great example as we come onto this busy thoroughfare here. Ahead of us, you can probably see St. Mary at Hill. The street sign there leads up to a lovely church where the fish industry still has an annual service with tons of fish on the altar. This building, 100 Lower Thames Street, doesn't always look like this, of course. Originally a Roman house with baths underneath. And then by 1770, so 18th century now, it becomes a coal exchange. There's a fabulous building built to house the coal exchange because, of course, we're now talking about the industrial age. Coal is needed to burn. The building for the coal exchange exists until 1962, and then it's taken away. And we'll get another example of this as we turn the corner. You can see ahead of us St. Dunstan's Hill. We want to turn left here, pass these bollards off this busy street. With any luck, it'll get a little bit quieter, which often happens. And you can see ahead of us there's a churchyard with a tower to the left. Um, trees in the middle and we're going to actually go in here so we're curving to the right of the brick wall and as we come round just before we get to the cobbles you'll see there's a little staircase up here to the left and we want to go up in here this is St Dunstan's in the east so again here with St Dunstan's you've got the reuse in this case of a single building over time there's a church here from quite early 1100 is the first record we've got of it and this one is actually smaller. So we're going to walk up the stairs into what used to be the nave. So this is Wren designing the steeple of this. And you can see that what you don't have here anymore is a church because it was bombed in the war. And then it's decommissioned and turned into this very peaceful, rather beautiful space. So curving round to the right of the tower will take us out we're walking around the end of the church and we're going to turn right up this lane and uphill. You can see here it's Idle Lane. Heading up this hill is a reminder that London is in fact built on hills. The Roman city was built on two hills. We'll find the stream that runs between them in a little while. And still today you can see that the street pattern follows the land. It's not straight lines by and large. And as we come up this idle lane, we're going to turn left at the end. You can probably hear already there's a busy street beginning to make itself known. So at the top of idle lane, we're going to turn left, which is going to be East Cheap. Cheap basically means market. So this is one of the big markets in the medieval city. Not the biggest, and we'll see that a little later in the walk. Still an important market and still today a busy road, which follows the old line. As we walk down East Cheap, you're probably hearing a lot of traffic noise. It's a busy street. But you can also see this kind of mashup of architecture that's happened on these streets over the years. On the left, we're just passing St. Marriott Hill. And if you just glance down there, you'll see the clock in front of the church, which I mentioned, where the fishermen hang out sometimes. And coming up on our right, on the other side of the street, you'll see this crazy gabled building right in front of an even crazier building, the walkie-talkie building in front, 33 East Cheap, you can probably see the number now, was in fact built in the 1860s for a vinegar maker from Worcester. This was their depot, but obviously making a statement now that they're in London trying to sell their wares. So we're going to cross East Cheap here and we're aiming for Philpot Lane, you can see on the other side. It's a busy street, please be careful. And we're going to head up Philpot Lane.
As we walk up Philpot Lane, you can see the contrast between the different buildings. Some of these actually do date back, at least in terms of scale, to the 18th century. But on our right, we have the walkie-talkie. So walking beside the walkie-talkie building now, up top, there are a few plants in pots. Uh, they got their planning permission on the basis of it being a garden. And you can probably hear there's quite a bit of wind we're contesting with today. The other thing that's happened with this new walkie-talkie building is Philpot Lane has become a wind tunnel. So if you're here on a really windy day, you might have to lean into the wind just a little bit. Try not to fall over. So at the top of Philpot Lane, again, we're going to cross over. We're not turning on Fenchurch Street. You'll see 159, go to the left of that, and head straight over. Why Lime Street? It's not the fruit, it's lime burners. And they're here from the 12th century. They move out, of course. The dirty trades begin to move to the margins of London. So by the 19th century, this is taken up very much by insurance, by shipping, by these kinds of things for a reason that will become clear in just a moment. So we're heading up Lime Street and we want to turn left by the red brick building with the awning in front of it. You can see Lime Street passage and through the bollards we go. So we're in on cobbles now. This very uneven roadway curves around and overhead now you can see Leadenhall Market on this kind of cornice suspended above with massive new buildings behind, which we'll talk about in a minute. But first we need to understand what we're looking at here. We're going to go straight ahead beyond Leadenhall Market. You can see there's a date, AD 1881, usefully tells you when it was built. We're going to turn right at this main intersection by the Lamb Tavern. You can probably hear we're at the end of the working day and people are enjoying themselves. So we've turned right and we're passing the Lamb Tavern on our left. If you glimpse through the doorway there, you might see there's a tiled picture, which is a wonderful image of Christopher Wren, the great architect, redirecting the building of London after the fire. We're taking a glimpse at. But we're going to keep walking beyond the barrier if you can and then tuck yourself in on the left. So the city has been burned to the ground, and of course destruction is always a catalyst for change. The Great Fire is a big turning point in the history of the city, not just because we get new buildings. There are also fewer churches, 85 of them burned during the fire, only 51 of those are rebuilt. But there are actually fewer people in the city itself. There are about 200,000 people before the fire. By 1700, 30 years afterwards, there are 140,000. London itself is the biggest city in Europe, but only a quarter of them live within the old walls. What's happening? The wealthy are heading west. They're being pulled over towards Westminster into the orbit of the court. There are some poorer settlements out to the east as well, as the communities there begin to service the river and its trade. If you want to know more about those two stories, then check out our other walks, where you can find out more about the West End and all the squares that are built for the wealthy as well as, maybe a little more interesting, the people who keep the city going with their work in the East End. But, of course, the city remains central. Its merchants are beginning to dominate global trade during these years. Even so, it's still a distinctive mix. It's a place for living, for trade, increasingly for finance, but it's also a place to live. It's the mid-19th century that's the turning point. Again, people are moving out. This time it's the middle classes. Rail is coming into the city, allowing them to live further away. They're going to the West End for fashion. They're going to the new suburbs, most of them south of the river, for clean air as the city gets filthier and filthier. 
But you've also got Telegraph coming a little later, which of course increases the amount of information flowing into the city, increasing the demand for space to trade in, and you've got Empire beginning to bite. All of these things changing the face of the city, and you can see it in the numbers. In the 1850s, you've already got 200,000 people a day walking into the city to work, but you've still got 100,000 living here. By 1900, that's changed. There's only 27,000 living. It's reduced by a factor of four. Also, four-fifths of the building in the city were rebuilt during the second half of the 19th century, almost as big a rebuilding project as the one that followed the fire. And here's a very good place to see that transformation. So let's start with the market, Leadenhall Market. It's here from the 14th century. It's a place where foreigners, that means non-Londoners actually, can sell poultry. And it's in the courtyard of a lead-roofed aristocratic mansion. So Leadenhall, a hall with a lead roof. There's a lot of rebuilding, there's a lot of additions over the years, but come the 19th century, the market isn't just selling meat and poultry, it's selling everything. It's provisioning the restaurants, the eating places of the city. And by the middle of the 19th century, doing that in the open air, out in the street, is beginning to have some public health consequences. So what happens is the city begins to build markets for its traders. And it's the same architect who does all three of the big ones. This is a guy called Horace Jones. He's the city architect at the time. He builds Smithfield for meat. It's a little to the north of here. He builds Billingsgate, which we've already seen for fish. And he builds this one. It's the last of the three in 1880. And you can see what he's doing and when he's doing it. There's a lot of cast iron in this. There's a lot of glass up top, but there's still timber supporting the glass. So it's very much of its time. Look up, you'll see these dragons, which are the symbol of the city and which always mark entrances and particular domains of the city's own government. Now, of course, it doesn't sell produce. It sells prepared food. This is a place to come and eat, a place to come and drink after work. It's occupied by restaurants and retail. What happens next is, of course, something we can't see anymore. If you turn around and look at this extraordinary metal and concrete structure on your left, you can probably tell it's quite recent, and it hasn't been here for that long. What it was before was East India House. It's the headquarters of the East India Company, this monopoly company that dominates the city for much of the 18th century. Companies formed in 1600, they petition Queen Elizabeth I for a charter. This is what they ask for. To adventure and set forth one or more voyages by way of traffic and merchandise to the East Indies, in the countries and parts of Asia and Africa, as where trade and traffic may by all likelihood be discovered, established or had. So at this point, when the East India Company is forming, it's a minnow, but the country it's in is also a minnow. At this point, India comprises one-fifth of the world's population. India also produces one-quarter of the world's manufacturing. By comparison, England at the same point in time has about 5% of the global population, 3% of its manufacturing. It's not that important. So the East India Company has to work to make its way in the world. So the company in the first instance is after spices, but along the way they do reach India and they realize that it is a rich market and they want to be able to trade. So they prevail upon the monarch, King James I, to write a letter to the person who he thinks is his counterpart, which is the Mughal emperor, the ruler of South Asia, Jahangir. So James writes a letter to Jahangir asking him to permit the company to trade. And Jahangir writes a very kind response. Here it is. 
Upon which assurance of your royal love, I have given my general command to all the kingdoms and ports of my dominions to receive all the merchants of the English nation as the subjects of my friend, that in what place soever they choose to live, they may have free liberty without any restraint. It's a gracious diplomatic gesture to somebody who is not his equal. What follows, of course, on the part of the company is not grace or restraint, it's commercial rapacity. The company has been in India for a while. By the middle of the 18th century, it's butting up against the French. In the middle of the 18th century, it begins to wage war. And from that time on, the company begins to dominate. Dominate not just the city, but dominate global trade. Initially, in the middle of the 18th century, it's doing this with 250 clerks on the ground in South Asia, 20,000 soldiers. By 1803, it's got 200,000 soldiers, and it is able to take Delhi it's become the de facto ruler of India. So from the middle of the 18th century to the early 19th century, the company controls half the world's trade in commodities which range from textiles, silks, cottons, calicos, things like this, to drugs, tea and opium, of course, famously. And this is where they did it from, although you can no longer see it today. This was their headquarters. They were close by here until 1638, right at the beginning. Then they moved to Leadenhall Street, in the middle of the 17th century, they doll up an old mansion where they're based and they put some wood on top of it with a painting of a ship, a sculpture of a seaman up top to say, we're here. But then by the early 18th century, they're beginning to make it. They build a new building here with a very grand classical portico, lots of art showing Britannia receiving the riches of the East and all their factories, factories being the place where their agents make trade. This goes from St. Helena through Cape Town in what is now South Africa, all the way to South Asia and their various places there. And of course, because they're here, they become a magnet for other businesses, especially shipping and insurance, the things on which they rely to do the trade. They don't make a good fist of it. They're often in arrears. Other people begin to nibble away at their monopolies. They lose those in the early 19th century. And then, of course, in the middle of the 19th century, they push South Asia to what many people who live in India still today call the first war of independence. A year or two later, they're stripped of their capacity to rule, and that is transferred to the crown. This building, their old headquarters, is vacated in 1860 and then demolished, and eventually it's replaced by what you can see now. So what you've got in front of you is the third of these great institutions, the market, the monopoly company, and now we look at Lloyd's of London. So here you're seeing the early modern trade in stuff, in goods, with the East India Company beginning to turn into the 20th century machinations of finance. This too starts small. This starts up in Edward Lloyd's Coffee House, hence the name, which is near the tower. Why a coffee house? It's a good place to get news, news about shipping. It's a good place to get insurance. And what forms there, in fact, has a monopoly on the slave trade until abolition, insurance for the slave trade. They do well. A society forms. They begin to rent rooms at the Royal Exchange at the end of the 18th century. They get parliamentary acknowledgement at the end of the 19th century. They form syndicates. They can take on larger risks. Their reputation starts skyrocketing, particularly after the San Francisco earthquake in 1906, when they actually follow through on claims. They pay out claims where other insurers are balking because the cost is so great. And so they continue to grow. They move to this site, the old East India Company headquarters site, in the 1920s. And then in the late 1970s, they need a new building. And this is what they come up with. If you've been to Paris, you may know the Pompidou Centre by Richard Rogers, same architect here. 
over in Paris working with Renzo Piano. Here he's working alone or with his studio. And what he's doing here is he's turning the building inside out. So all the moving parts, you might see the lifts shooting up and down the side. You can see the ductwork for all the electricals. They're normally buried in the middle of a building. Here they're put on the outside. What you have inside here is a massive financial concern. Lloyd's has about 75 billion sterling in assets. They're getting paid 35 billion in annual premiums. And of course, if the world explodes, they're going to have to pay out way more than either of those figures. But still, because it's Lloyd's, because it has a history, it has bits of that in the building. In the middle of the underwriting floor, they have the Lutine Bell. This was originally a French ship seized by the British, sank and then recovered in the 1860s. And then, of course, because it's Lloyd's, on the ninth floor, there is a perfect 18th century wood panel boardroom in which to make the decisions that really count. So we've seen the medieval market turned into a 19th century market. We've seen a trading company flourish and then fall. And we've seen the kind of financial industry that replaces it. The basic story is in place. With this, we can now move on and we can begin to see how all of this is supported by food and drink, which we've already heard, but also by bigger institutions which underpin the city. So we're going to start walking again. We're going to leave Lloyd's on our left and the market behind us, just walk towards the end of the street. At the end, you might be able to see 40 Lime Street. We're reconnecting with Lime Street see when we turn the corner a massive new building which talks about the kind of accumulation of capital the accumulation of wealth the pressure on the prime sites in the city but still they're constrained ever so slightly by the past by the property lines which say that you've only got this much space to build on so as we come to the end of Leadenhall Place you can see the sign on the right we're going to turn left on Lime Street and again keeping Lloyd's on our left and as you turn the corner, you can begin to see these other huge buildings beginning to soar up around us. And we're going to walk past the barriers here towards the end of the street. So as we're walking up here, obviously much of this is more recent. But as we come up to the end of the street, there are some other things going on as well. You can see already a church. And the church is pre-fire. It's one of the few that survived. This is St. Andrew Undershaft, 1530s. Right next to the church, you've got a Lloyd's Bank, a very classic late 19th century building. And then straight ahead of us, this black glass box, is St. Helens. This is early post-war office building, kind of modernist style for the architectural aficionados. There are plans now to take this down. There's not enough space in there. That's only 118 metres tall. The replacement will be nearly triple, 270. As you come to the corner of Lime Street and Leadenhall Street, you'll see a little round compass here just worth pausing and looking. So you've got the gherkin over on your right, soaring behind the church, built by Lord Foster and his team in 2004, only 180 metres. On our left, next to St Helens, suspended on these huge flying legs, if you like, we've got the cheese grater by Richard Rogers. But you might also notice it's leaning back. And the reason it's leaning back is because otherwise it would obstruct a particular view of St Paul's from a particular site in the city. So we're turning left onto Leadenhall Street, again keeping Lloyd's on our left, and we're going to see more of this way in which architecture, but also the buildings, just keep on changing over time. We're going to be heading straight down. Right at the end, you can probably see a red and cream-striped building, which we'll end up at in a little while. So as we're walking down Leadenhall on our right, you'll see 140 Leadenhall. This used to be a bank by Edwin Lutyens, the architect of Delhi. And then on our left, the original portico to the previous Lloyd's building, which they've kept. This is something you see a lot of in the city these days. You'll keep the facade of something and build something new behind it. So here you have this kind of neoclassical portico from, again, the late 1920s. 
fronting this entrance to a very different kind of building. When we're recording this, we're coming up on two building sites on both right and left. Development is relentless. Come to the end of Leadenhall Street, and we need to cross over here. Gracechurch Street to our left, Bishopsgate to our right, and we're going to cross straight over into Cornhill. So now we're on Cornhill. We're leaving those huge buildings behind us where we see capital just accumulating and building and redeveloping and asking for more space. And we're going to discover a slightly different story about the things that are needed to get the show on the road. <laughs> we're passing St. Peter's Alley on your left and you'll see coming up is an alley we want to turn down. So we're turning left here at St. Michael's Alley and you'll notice we're going past the front of a church, very elaborate portico with a war memorial in front of us. And this allows us to see the other side of the city, not the main streets, not the big buildings, but the eating houses and so on. You'll see we're coming up to a great big suspended lantern, the Jamaica Wine House. And so on the left you can see this sign. Here stood the first London coffee house at the sign of Pasqua Rosie's head. This is in 1652. It's in the middle of the Commonwealth. In other words, the king's lost his head, which we'll talk about in another couple of walks. We're being ruled by the Puritans. But coffee is making its way to the city, and people are beginning to trade in these places, in the coffee houses, in the drinking houses, in the eating establishments. And in this warren of streets, you can see this. You can probably hear it as well. Maybe the people here at the end of a working day are continuing that tradition. We're going to aim down the alley and at the St. Michael's Alley sign. Don't go under the archway, turn right, and we'll see another couple of instances of this culture. So we've turned right before going under the archway, and now we're in Castle Court. And you can see immediately on our left, we've got the Georgian Vulture. On our right, you can see a sign to Simpson's Tavern. Both of these dating from the 18th century, both of them giving a very good sense of the culture that emerges out of these various establishments. And we're going to keep on going down, and this time under the archway with some red bricks overhead. You can see Birchin Lane. We're going to turn left here. And again, these lanes in between the main streets of the city, giving a sense of this kind of very dense, very interconnected trading universe. So we're coming to the end of Castle Court. We're going to turn left here on Birchin Lane. We don't want to take the first right. That's Cowper's Court. We're going to keep going a little bit in opposite number 20 Birchin Court. We're going to turn right down an alleyway. It doesn't actually have a sign on it, but in the pavement you can see a plaque saying Change Alley. We want to turn right down that. As you turn right, you'll see some very distinctive white tiles ahead of you. So we're going to head down here. And the reason to turn right here is because we're now in Change Alley, the same as Exchange, where people did their business, and the site of some of the original of these small, tiny little eating places, drinking places, where people made their trades. As we come into this little courtyard at the end, you can see ahead of you a blue sign, the site of the King's Arms Tavern, where the first meeting of the Marine Society was held. Just pause here at this blue plaque, look to your left and you'll see another sign, the site of Garraway's Coffee House, rebuilt in 1874. But Garraway's too goes way back to the middle of the 17th century. It's the first place to serve tea. So we've had coffee with Pasqua Rosie. We've got tea here. Another coffee house that was very close to this place was Jonathan's, which is the origin of the stock exchange. 
So all of these places take on different kind of qualities. You have Lloyd's with its shipping, with its insurance. You have Jonathan's with stocks and shares being traded. So this is very much the kind of birthplace of some of the much larger financial institutions which we know today. So when you've had a look at these little coffee house signs, turn left, you've got a glass wall building on your left, you've got some more white tiles on your right. If that's blocked off, just keep going and turn left at the next one, you'll get to the same place. As you come out of Change Alley, you'll find yourself on Lombard Street. Why Lombard Street? Financiers, bankers, originally come from Lombardy in Italy. This is in the 14th century, so they begin to congregate here. They're providing the finance for the early city development. By the middle of the 18th century, private banks are beginning to set up here. A lot of the buildings you're seeing around now are later, 19th century or even more recent. You might also notice, if you look up, the banking signs. So if you look to your right and up, immediately above your head, you'll find a grasshopper. And just above it, you'll see also some initials, TG, and a date. You'll want to keep this in mind because the man whose bank this was will reappear in our story very quickly. These signs are in fact banned in the following century, in the 17th century, and then they're reinstated at the beginning of the 20th century to kind of historicize the street. So we're going to turn right on Lombard Street and we're going to walk towards the end of the street. As we walk down the street, you'll see another blue plaque, the site of Lloyd's Coffee House. So this is where Lloyd's relocated. After it was at the tower, it was still a coffee house, and that's what grew into that huge steel and concrete structure we just saw a little ways back. On our left, past post office court, you'll see the beginning of a church, and we'll want to pause here. So just head for the underground sign here on top of this striking pillar, and you'll want to turn around and look at the front of this church. So what we're looking at is St. Mary Woolnoth. It's one of 50 churches built in the beginning of the 18th century as part of a parliamentary initiative to attract people back to the right faith. It's a masterpiece by Nicholas Hawksmore, one of Christopher Wren's pupils. You might have noticed as we walked past on the north side that the windows were in fact blank. This is because Lombard Street used to be the busy street, so you wanted some sound protection on that side. You have many more windows on the south side, on the other side, which we can't quite see In the 1830s, King William Street is built to its south, linking London Bridge to the centre of the city, so things get turned around. And then in the 1890s, an underground station is built just on King William Street, and the crypt is used as a booking hall. This is also, of course, the church that appears in one of the most famous poems about the city of London in the 1920s, T.S. Eliot talking about what's happening at that time. Here he is. Unreal city. Under the brown fog of a winter dawn, a crowd flowed over London Bridge. So many, I had not thought death had undone so many. Sighs, short and infrequent, were exhaled, and each man fixed his eyes before his feet, flowed uphill and down King William Street to where St. Mary Woolnoth kept ours, with a dead sound on the final stroke of nine. If the church happens to be open... This is a good point to pause and head inside and appreciate Hawksmoor's genius. But we're going to head on. We're going to turn around, walk past the underground sign and start curving around the street and you'll find yourself in the bank intersection. Appearing ahead of you now a statue and underneath it Wellington. And we're going to cross the street and stand at the back of Wellington's horse. So here we are standing behind Wellington statue, which gives us a great perspective on what's going on here. So far, 
we've told the story of the city as the story of the market. Countless decisions made by countless individuals which reached out from the square mile to the ends of the earth. They allowed things to be extracted and shipped and traded, wealth to be accumulated, streets to be rerouted, architects to be employed. Very occasionally, it all required the state to step in to give a monopoly charter, for example. That's a true story, but like any story, like any place, there are other threads to unpick and to explore. As trade spread, as the market got bigger, as the state itself needed financing, so the city needed different kinds of institutions to coordinate its dealings. In other words, there came a point when a coffee shop didn't cut it anymore. The need for stimulants never went away, but they get consumed in different kinds of place. And here are three of the most important. First, if you face away from Wellington statue and look up, you're looking at the Royal Exchange. It's the idea of Thomas Gresham. We've already seen him, or we've seen his initials, TG, above the grasshopper. He's a mercer. He spends some time in Antwerp in the middle of the 16th century. It's the most thriving market in Europe. And he copies their idea. And this is the result. What you have is a large open courtyard in the middle. You have some shops on the ground floor and offices up above. It opens in 1570. It's quite similar today, although there's no real trading going on in here. This isn't the original building, of course. This is the third. And here's Thomas Addison, the founder, the inventor of the Spectator magazine, describing the second in the early 18th century. There is no place in the town which I so much love to frequent as the Royal Exchange. It gives me a secret satisfaction and in some measure gratifies my vanity as I am an Englishman. To see so rich an assembly of countrymen and foreigners consulting together upon the private business of mankind and making this metropolis a kind of emporium for the whole earth. I am infinitely delighted in mixing with these several ministers of commerce as they are distinguished by their different walks and different languages. Sometimes I am jostled among a body of Armenians. Sometimes I am lost in a crowd of Jews and sometimes make one in a group of Dutchmen. I am a Dane, a Swede, or a Frenchman at different times, or rather fancy myself like the old philosopher who, upon being asked what countryman he was, replied that he was a citizen of the world. That was the early 18th century. This royal exchange that we're looking at is, in fact, from the middle of the 19th century. It's bigger. It's an architectural mashup. Look up at the sculpture in the pediment, that triangular bit on top of the entrance. You can see what's going on, what the city is trying to claim. You've got commerce standing in the middle behind them. You've got a ship. Commerce is holding a charter around them. You've got merchants and workmen. But by this point, the action has actually moved elsewhere. The city is beginning to move from the kind of trade that went on here to finance. So you want to turn slightly to your left to this big screen wall. Um, what you're looking at is the Bank of England. And again, we have to go back a little bit in time. The merchants had had to rely on the state for the monopolies in the middle of the 16th century. That's where the East India Company gets its start. By the end of the 17th century, the state needs to turn to the city. Why? It's fighting a lot of wars in Europe. It doesn't have the funds. It doesn't have the credit. It needs a new navy. So in the 1690s, a call goes out. Subscriptions are solicited for a new bank, the pitch being that it will have a monopoly on government finances. They raise 1.2 million. Doesn't sound like a lot. It's just under 150 billion today. And they raise it in 12 days, which is pretty good going. The bank remains private for two and a half centuries, but it keeps growing. 
and what you can see is the result. It starts small, it starts in a Mercer's Hall, it moves to the Grocer's Hall, then they buy a mansion here in 1724 and they start building. More wars mean more building. The wars in the middle of the 18th century are with France, first the Seven Years' War, then the Napoleonic War, and so come the early 19th century, following the Napoleonic War, you need a new bank. And they call on John Soane, the great architect of the day, to build not what you see today, but part of it, including this screen wall. A bank needs protection from rioters as well as others. Then, at the beginning of the 20th century, World War I means more business for the bank, means the need for more space, and so Soane's original building is knocked down. If you want to pause the walk here and see what it looked like, you can just go down to the left of the Royal Exchange, cross the road and take the next left and you'll find the Bank of England Museum, which has one of the original banking halls, which is an extraordinary space, but it no longer exists as a place to work in. But that's not what survives. What survives was built by Baker to replace Soane's original building and it's got lambasted over the years. One prominent architectural historian calls this the worst individual loss suffered by London's architecture in the 20th century, which of course includes the Blitz, so that's quite a slam. In any case, the bank has been here since the 18th century. It's actually been public since 1946, right after the Second World War, and it's been independent since 1997. And of course, it continues to govern the economy today. It's responsible for stable prices, for the currency. It, it really underpins the financial system. The third building we just want to look at briefly is on the other side of the intersection from the bank and from the Royal Exchange. If you look across, you can see, again, a very impressive portico with columns and another pediment. And this is Mansion House. We'll talk more about the government of the city on our next stop, but this is in some ways the symbolic stage upon which the city parades. It's the official residence for the Lord Mayor. It was built in the 1730s. The City of London had had a mayor for five centuries before then, but with the city's increasing prominence in the early 18th century, you need a place to display this. So it's quite a constricted site, but it's a grand statement nonetheless with this portico, with the sculpture. We've seen a version of this theme before on the monument. This is the city now trampling envy and receiving the benefits of plenty brought, of course, by the river. Originally, it's a bit grander. There's a courtyard in front with a double staircase leading round. That disappears in the late 19th century when many things do disappear to make way for traffic improvements. But still today, the Lord Mayor of the City of London holds court here. They're elected by members of the livery companies, by the Mercers, the Goldsmiths. They serve for a year. And during that year, the government comes twice to make an important speech. Both the Foreign Secretary and the Chancellor of the Exchequer come to justify what the government of the day is doing to the people who control the purse strings. So we've got the Royal Exchange, we've got the Bank of England, and we've got Mansion House. And that brings us back here to the foot of Wellington, which tells us a story about industry and empire, the things that underpin the activities of the city. By the middle of the 19th century, this intersection is more or less the financial center of the world. The whole thing is enabled, of course, by industry and empire, and you can see that in the sculpture you see around. We're standing at the foot of Wellington, the great general who conquers the French, clearing the way for Britain to rule the waves in the 19th century. Behind Wellington, you have a monument to the First World War to the men and women of the City of London who fell as we were pushing back the imperial challenge of Germany. And then over on the right, on Cornhill, in the middle of the street, you'll see a figure with a hat and his cloak over his right arm, and this is James Henry 
Henry Greathead, one of the great engineers of the late 19th century. He is the man who is largely responsible for the underground as we know it today. He was born in South Africa, he comes over here, he works on the underground for a while, and he invents the shield, so-called, which allows us to tunnel deep underground. It's thanks to him that we have the Northern Line, although, of course, with the Elizabeth Line now, the tunnels have got slightly bigger. If you have a little bit of time here, you might want to pause the walk and cross the intersection over to the left of the mansion house, walk down that passage, go around the corner, and you'll find probably Sir Christopher Wren's greatest achievement, St. Stephen Walbrook. But we're going to cross the intersection the other way. We're going to be aiming for the pink and cream striped building, which we've already seen a little earlier in the walk, walking down Cornhill. And we're going to go up the street to the right of that. So be careful crossing the roads. This can be a busy intersection. So cross over Threadneedle Street, walk past the edge of the bank. You'll see Prince's Street on your right. Walk past this impressive bank building, NatWest Bank. Leave it on your right as well. And then curve around the corner. Passing the front of Mansion House, you can see quite splendid, and you can see the sculpture up top. And we're just going to head, leaving Nat West to our right, with the cream and red stripe building on our left. On the other side of that building, a late 19th century addition, another street cut through Queen Victoria Street, facilitating traffic, a story we've heard already. Just beyond the Nat West Bank, and another blue plaque, another demolished church. On our right, we now have Lutyens, headquarters of the Midland Bank. And ahead of us, we can see the spire of St. Mary Le Beau, famous for bow bells. If you're born within hearing distance of them, you might be a cockney. On our left, you can see a passageway leading under this postmodernist red and cream striped building, number one poultry building from the 1990s by James Sterling. And now coming up on the right, you should see the sign to Old Jewry, and we want to turn right here. Why Old Jewry? Because this is where the Jewish community was based. They last here for two centuries, and then they're expelled in the 1290s. Expulsion opens the space for communities like the financiers from Lombardy to begin to make their mark. We're going to walk up Old Jury. We're passing Frederick's place on our left. Keep going a little bit, and then on our left, you'll see an alleyway opening up. So we want to turn left down this alley, St. Olav's Court. Ahead of us, you'll see some trees. You can probably begin to guess this is a churchyard, or in fact it was a churchyard. This is another decommissioned church. The tower still stands, but it takes us through to another small alley in the city where you can hear there's a little bit more peace and quiet. At the end of St. Olav's Court, we're turning right on Ironmongers Lane. They're making iron here from the 11th century. They move out as well. Like the lime burners, the dirty trades tend to migrate to the edges. They've moved east by the middle of the 15th century or thereabouts. And we're going to just walk down Ironmongers Lane and we're coming up to a slightly busier street at the end. Gresham Street, you've met Thomas Gresham already. TG, the man with the grasshopper. But this street doesn't date from his time. This was actually patched together from a little warren of previous lanes and alleyways in the 19th century and his name was slapped on it. 
At the end of the street, you'll want to turn left onto Gresham Street. At the traffic light, you're going to want to cross Gresham Street to the other side, cross the street and leave the church on your left, and you will walk into Guildhall Yard. So here we are in Guildhall Yard. This is the place from which the city has been governed to defend its interests against the state, to provide the rules of the game so that wealth can continue to be accumulated, to make sure its players don't tear each other apart. Originally, when the Romans were here, this was actually part of the amphitheatre. If you go into the basement of the Guildhall Art Gallery on your right, you can still see some remnants of that. The next thing we have here in the late 12th century is the church, St. Lawrence Jury a Christian church named after the Jewish community whose neighbourhood this was. The church, of course, was rebuilt after the fire by Wren, is currently being restored yet again. And then in the early 15th century, you get the first bit of what you can see in front of you, which is the Guildhall itself. It looks like the nave of a medieval church, because indeed it more or less is. What you've got, therefore, is the genesis for everything that comes later. It's actually the third Guildhall on site, but it's the one we can see. And it's here that the contradictions of trade and empire play out. So, for example, in the late 18th century, on the one hand, you have the Guildhall as the stage for an insurance claim. Gregson versus Gilbert. Here's the summary of the court case. Where the captain of a slave ship mistook Hispaniola, Haiti, for Jamaica, whereby the voyage being retarded and the water falling short, several of the slaves died for want of water, and others were thrown overboard. It was held that these facts, however, did not support a statement in the declaration that by the perils of the seas and contrary winds and currents, the ship was retarded in her voyage, and by reason thereof so much of the water on board was spent, that some of the Negroes died for want of sustenance, and others were thrown overboard for the preservation of the rest. In fact... Gregson was a slave trading syndicate. Based in Liverpool, their ship had left Accra with 442 slaves, more than double the average number for that size of ship, and it finally arrived in Jamaica with 208, less than half. The syndicate, of course, tried to claim on the insurance policy it had taken out on the lives of the slaves who had died, and the insurers refused to pay. The jury, sympathetic, merchants themselves, found for the slavers. The judgment was overturned on appeal. And the case becomes notorious. It catalyzes the abolitionist movement. And five years later, in 1788, down in Westminster, Parliament starts regulating the slave trade. That's one side of the coin. In the same year, though, in 1788, the Guildhall is extended with the porch we see today because the East India Company has begun to control a large swath of the South Asian continent. It's building its authority in what is now India. Artists have begun to travel and sketch and engrave. It's safe to travel in a way that it wasn't before. And they're beginning to send back to London pictures of the Mughal, that is the Muslim architecture of North India, Delhi and its surrounds. And so the city's architect back in London, this is George Dance the Younger, produces this portico, which we know as Hindu Gothic. It's not. It's based on Muslim models. 1788, both sides of empire are playing out here around the Guildhall.
it's not the end of the story, of course. You can see that other things have been added over time. In the middle of the 19th century, time is moving a little bit too fast. The city is getting nervous. The city's architect adds the turrets, the buttresses. It takes the Guildhall back in time to the Gothic. Even later, you have other things added. In the 1950s, the office block to the left. In the 1970s, the library to the left of that. And then in the 1990s, the art gallery. So you've got a place to raise taxes, to make decisions, to keep records. With the city's government in place, the city is more or less complete. It's tempting to end the walk here, but let's walk just a little bit further to reflect on what we've seen and to remind ourselves that underneath finance, there has always been faith. So now we're going to leave the Guildhall Yard and go back to Gresham Street. So if you can, you'll want to turn left and leave the Guildhall Yard under the portico next to the west wing and walk out onto the street that way. You might have to retrace your steps a bit back past the church and turn right. If you've retraced your steps, you'll be back at the traffic light. Ahead of you, you can see King Street, another 18th century addition. But we're turning right back onto Gresham Street. So you may have come out under the arch from Guildhall Yard, or you may have walked up Gresham Street. But now we find ourselves on this corner. You can see Aldermanbury, a street sign. But we're going to cross the street and leave number 20 to our right. So we're going to be walking down Milk Street. Why Milk? Because this is part of Cheapside Market in the medieval period, which you can see at the end. And we're just going to walk down Milk Street, and this will take us back onto Cheapside. Ahead of us, we can see Compter Passage. We're going to turn right there just before we get to Cheapside to see another bit of the market. Why Compter? Because there is a debtor's prison here. If you have a city and people default on their contracts, you need to do something to them. So the Compter is the debtor's prison. It's here from the middle of the 16th century to the end of the 18th century. At the end of this passage, turn left, you'll be on Wood Street. Head to the end of Wood Street where you'll find yourself on Cheapside. So at the end of Wood Street, we're back on Cheapside. Cheapside was the main market of the medieval city. It's the widest street in the medieval city. It's the main market for milk and bread and fish and wood, as we've just seen. By the 15th century, you're beginning to get luxury goods purveyors setting up here. And this is also where tournaments and parades take place. By the 19th century, it's become very different. It's full of warehouses and offices. And so now we're on Cheapside, we want to head across the road diagonally towards the entrance to one new change with a red awning overhead. Again, be careful here, this can be a busy street at some times of day, so look both ways. If you go through this red roof passageway, you'll come to the centre of one new change, this mall, this shopping complex in the middle of the city of London. And as you come to the staircase, you'll see on your left some lifts. As a way of ending the walk, let's get into the lift. Just press the button for six. There's only a few buttons. And as the lift goes up, if you face St Paul's, you will see suddenly the church revealing itself to you. And don't face back into the shopping complex as the lift goes up. Look to your west and you will see St Paul's appear. You can already see it from the ground floor. This is Wren's crowning achievement. It's also an extraordinary bit of contemporary architecture that reveals this. And you'll see 
as we reach the top, London reveal itself. There's a bar up here, and you might have to walk past the bouncer. Coming out of the lift, you're going to turn left. There's some steps, so be a little bit careful. And head down. So here we are. We're on the roof of One New Change. You can probably hear the wind buffeting around. Um, I hope my voice comes through. But it's a wonderful place to look out over London and to kind of recap what we've seen so far. So if you put some pull at your back and look east, you'll see looming over the top of this building some of the huge new constructions which we've glimpsed earlier in the walk and which continue to sprout up. Money has always talked in this town. It's always needed more space. There is always money to be made by catering to the demands of finance. If you turn to your right and look south across the river, you'll see on the south bank too the cranes are busy, the shard over by London Bridge to the left. And then straight west, of course, we've got St Paul's. A reminder that even when finance begins to rule the roost, it has to accommodate the demands of faith. St Paul's has to be visible from certain points in London. If you look just to the right of St Paul's, you'll see another little dome which looks rather like it and indeed is an echo of St Paul's, topped by a golden figure, arms outstretched, scales in one hand, a sword in the other. This is the figure of justice, which tells you that you're looking at the Old Bailey. This is in fact from the early 20th century, a conscious echo of the bigger dome. Justice, though, in London is not always blind, which we'll hear more about So this is the end of this episode, but it's not the end of the walk. So far, we've discovered how finance, how trade, how commerce has generated the city. But what we need to know next is how the city and its wealth connects to Westminster and power. We're going to look at that connection in the next walk. We're going to be thinking about journalists who write about these things. We're going to be thinking about lawyers who intermediate between these things. We're also going to be thinking about academics who ponder these things. We're going to be walking down the hill to the west of St. Paul's. And so we're going to meet in the churchyard just across the street. If you go back down in the elevator and cross the road, cross into the churchyard, you'll find there's a golden cross there. And I'll meet you there to start our next walk. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Jelena Sofronievich. This series was produced in partnership with the Institute of Historical Research at the University of London. You can find out more about them at layersoflondon.org. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.